Good morning. Most often this passage gets dusted off and preached during a fundraising campaign for a new building. Makes for a great time for a special offering. So maybe as you saw this passage this morning, you wondered if today was going to be a big announcement. No, actually. But we are remodeling our upstairs bathrooms, so that's exciting. It's actually quite sad uh, that this passage is used like that to just prop up a building campaign because I understand why it's done, but I do think it misses the point. The point of the passage is not about money and generosity, although we see a great deal of it. What you just had read to you is a passage that, in my view, is the climax of the entire Old Testament. Seven months ago, we started this series in Genesis 1, and everything that we've covered thus far has brought us to this point, and we've arrived at the climax of the Old Testament story. But to see why, we're going to have to do some digging. But here's how I want to introduce this passage to you. I want you to think of it like this. Is that God is inviting you God is inviting us on an adventure, something that will display his power and his presence in a way that you've never seen before. Gandalf comes to the Shire. He's dressed in his long gray robes with his long gray beard, and he knocks on Bilbo's door, and he says, I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure with me. But it is so very difficult to find anyone. And Bilbo says, well, I should think so in these parts. We're playing quiet folk. We have no use for adventures. Those are nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. And they make you late for dinner. But then the dwarves show up at his door. And they invade his home because Gandalf had secretly made Bilbo's house their meeting place. And Bilbo's all very put out by the situation, but he hosts them anyways, makes them dinner. And then late one night, as the dwarves are gathered in his living room, he hears them talking about a quest, a mission, an adventure. And then they start to sing. They sing about the misty mountains, of dungeons dark and deep, of dragon's fire of enchanted gold and ancient kings. And when Bilbo hears it, something awakened within him. And everything changed. That song dissolved away his reluctance and his resistance to adventure. His commitment to comfort and ease and self-protection gave way to a new kind of curiosity that filled his heart and a courage that he never found. And that song awakened the desires within him that actually did long for something far more because it gave him a vision of something that he had to see for himself. But it was very costly because he had to let go of all of his comforts. The suburbs are not that much different than the Shire. 
They're on the outskirts, picturesque, pristinely manicured, quieter with a slower pace of life, and they're filled with people that desire comforts and ease and safety. And where we live, we experience as much of those things as anyone could reasonably expect or desire to experience in this life. And yet, strangely enough, it's also the place where we find out that all of those comforts aren't nearly enough. Because look around you at the people in your life. Do the people that you see and know seem satisfied and fulfilled? Do all the comforts of our community seem to have brought them to a place where they feel content and at peace? Or do you see people that are really still looking for something more? We live inside of a strange paradox where we are blessed with so much comfort and security that anyone could desire, and yet having all of those things just exposes even deeper desires within us. Perhaps we're all just looking for that song that awakens something within us and gives us a vision of something far bigger in this life that answers that gnawing question that all of us feel sooner or later. Is this it? Is this all that there is? And at the heart of this biblical story, at the heart of our faith, is being called out of what feels safe and comfortable and into what feels uncertain and unknown. From the beginning to the end, Abraham called out of Ur to a land he didn't know. Moses called out of obscurity into the halls of Pharaoh's throne room. Israel called out of the familiarity of their slavery out into the wilderness. And then Israel called out of the wilderness and into a land filled with giants. David being called out of the pasture and into the halls of power. And ultimately a king that goes around telling people to come and follow me. To truly follow this God, you will always be called out of comfort and into the uncertainty of a life of faith and trust and promise, where reliance upon him is your only anchor. And if we're honest, so much of our approach towards God and the way that we engage our faith is comfort-oriented. You can hear it in our prayers Lord Jesus, please take this away. Lord Jesus, please do this for me. Lord Jesus, please remove this obstacle or take away this hardship. It's Lord, please bring me back to this place of comfort and ease. Bring me back to this place that makes me feel safe and secure. And yet we live inside of this experiment that reveals ultimately in the end that all that comfort and ease isn't what you're really after. And so perhaps a God that calls us out of that comfort is not how he makes us lose our life. It's actually the invitation to find it. And Israel in our passage wasn't much different than the Shire either. Under David's kingship, they'd become a blessed people. A wealthy, prosperous people. Because at this point in the story in 1 Chronicles, their enemies had been defeated. And they'd been removed from the promised land. And remember, that was a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he would give his descendants a home. 
And part of that promise was driving out the Canaanites from the land. And the reason all throughout Samuel and Chronicles that we see this list over and over again of all of David's victories is because it's telling us that David finally did what Israel failed to do in Judges and what Saul was never willing to do. Finally, someone drove out the Canaanites from the land. And all the spoils of war had made Israel prosperous and wealthy. They were blessed. It provided them comfort and security and a peace that they had never, ever known before. Now they had spare time to fix up their homes and manicure their lawns. They didn't have to worry about their sons going off to war all the time. And from the outside, it would have appeared as though finally they had arrived. But God had so much more for them. And it's through David that God invites them into the next phase. To experience his power and his presence in a way that they had never seen before. And in this passage, David stands before the people one last time. He's an old man now. He doesn't have much time left. He walks out in his long robes and his long gray beard, and he invites the people on an adventure. He wanted them to see that the story wasn't over yet. Not nearly. In fact, it had only just begun. And he invites them to enter into this new chapter of this grand story that God wanted to tell through them. And don't make any mistake, even though David was old, he'd been very busy. The last 10 chapters of 1 Chronicles essentially tell how at the end of David's life, he had a beautiful and a holy obsession with building the temple of God. He spent his final years getting everything ready so that Solomon had everything that he needed in order to build it when he became king. David got the blueprints ready, and he made sure that Solomon studied it, and he knew it. He organized the priests, and he trained them in all of their duties. He organized the musicians. He set up their roles and their responsibilities. He gathered the gatekeepers to maintain the grounds. He established the treasurers and the overseers and officials to organize the records. And then he gathered all of the resources, the wood and the stone and the iron, and the precious gems that would be needed. He spent all of his final years getting everything ready to build the temple. And in this passage, he had one thing left to do. It was time to ready the people. And he said, Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the work will be so very great. I have provided everything as I was able for its construction, The wood and the iron and the stone and the marble and the precious gems. And in addition to all that I have provided because of my devotion to God and my devotion to the house of my God, I give the entirety of my own personal wealth. I give 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 talents of silver. Do you have any idea how much that was? If you just do the math in today's economy, David gave over $6 billion 
One talent is 75 pounds of gold. Perhaps now would be a good time to take up an offering. (laughs) Do you see David's single-minded devotion? It all comes down to this. He empties everything that he has. All he wants to see is everything ready so that the temple could be built. And then he gives the invitation and he says to the people, who then will offer willingly and consecrate themselves today to the Lord? So what's he doing with this invitation? He's inviting the people to enter into a new phase because he himself had entered into a new phase. So what was it that happened to David to bring him to this place where his heart was so set on the temple? The first half of David's life, you never see him talk about the temple, but in the last half, that's all he talks about. What brought him to this place of this holy obsession? We have to connect the dots. It's a story after all. And we have to go back to 2 Samuel 7 because that was the turning point in David's life. That's when David said to God, My Lord, I want to build you a dwelling place. I want to build you a house. But God says, No. David, you can't build me a house. But David, I am going to build you a house. I'm going to give you a throne that lasts forever. And of your kingdom, there will be no end. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Can you imagine what it would be like to hear God say that to you? I want to build you a house. No, I'm going to build you a house. To know such kindness and blessing. It was a profound moment in David's life. But then in 1 Chronicles, David tells us more about that conversation with God. He tells the rest of the story. He tells us why God told him no. He tells us why God said no and why he couldn't build the temple. It's because David was a man of war. There's too much blood on his hands to allow him to build the temple. And David keeps bringing that up multiple times throughout 1 Chronicles because he's telling us that that was the moment. That was a turning point for him that launched him into this work because God telling him no caused him to wrestle more deeply with the purposes of God and his place in them. Because David wanted to build the temple for good reasons. So that God would dwell in the midst of his people in splendor and in glory. But God telling him, no, David, you can't, had to be hard. Because David was a man of war. His crowning achievements of his life up to that point had been his victories in war. Victories that God himself had given to David. So God's answer to David forced him to realize that he had to disconnect war from God's presence. He had to realize that war was not what would establish God's presence with his people. It was something else. So what was it? 
What was it that would establish God's presence among his people who'd only known war for so many centuries? Well, David tells us in his prayer, he found his answers in the promises of God. Because if you look at his prayer at the end of this passage, David uses God's covenant name over and over and over and over again. And more particularly, he uses God's covenant nickname, if you will which is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the name that you use whenever you want to recall all of God's promises. That's the only time David uses that language, which means it's telling us something. David found his answers in the promises and purposes and mission of God, and he saw all that needed to happen. Because when God made his promises to Abraham, he said that his descendants would enter into the promised land and they would drive out the inhabitants of Canaan. Why? Because their iniquity was not yet complete. So all of this war that we have seen for all these centuries was not about establishing earthly power. It was about exercising divine justice. It was not teaching Israel how to posture themselves towards the rest of the world. It was about purifying the land to prepare it for God's presence. But warring against the nations is not what would establish God's presence. It was something else. And that something else was found in the rest of God's promises to Abraham. And it's the part of the promise that's so often overlooked and forgotten in the Old Testament. Because God's promise to Abraham wasn't just that he'd have descendants. And it wasn't just that his descendants would have a home in the promised land and drive out the Canaanites. All of that was to lead to the last part of the promise that was to be fulfilled. That his descendants would be a blessing to the nations and a light to the world. It was never about overpowering the nations. It was about showing the power of God to the nations. It was the promises of God that awakened David and caused him to change his posture towards the world and to remember the final purposes that God had for his people. It wasn't to war against the nations. It was to offer worship to the nations. This was the heart of God for the whole world to behold the beauty of God through a people of worship, not a people of war. It was through worship that God would establish his presence and make his people a light to the nations. And this is why we see David reorient everything in his life around the temple. And even though he couldn't build it, he did everything he possibly could to prepare God's people to become the people that God intended for them to be. So here when David stands before the people one last time, he was no longer the warrior king. Now he's the worshiping king, and he invites his people to join him, to stop being a people of war, and to become a people of worship. Who then will offer himself willingly and consecrate himself to the Lord today? And that's a risky invitation. Why? Because in all honesty, the magnitude of what David is asking here is completely lost on us. Because Israel is about to enter into a very vulnerable time. Because this is David. 
who went undefeated in war his entire life. And while he's alive, nobody's touching him. But what about when he dies? When Solomon becomes king, even David himself admits that he's young and he's inexperienced. And so what a great time for their enemies to take advantage of their vulnerability and their king's inexperience and attack when David dies. Of all times and of all moments, how easy would it have been to engage this situation as a people of war and say, no, we need to use these resources to make weapons and more swords and more spears to strengthen our military, to build up our infrastructure, to use the wood and the iron and the stone to build up our walls and to fortify our cities. We have to fight to protect all this comfort and blessing that we've been given. We have to prepare for war. But David says, no, you don't. His life sings a completely different song. He says, after all these years, after all these victories, have we learned nothing? The swords in our hands and the shields on our backs were never what made us victorious. It was the presence of God. He is our strength. He is our might and our shield because he is for us and he has purposes for us. It's time to lay down your swords. It's time to let go of your comfort and your fear. It's time to stop being a people of war and become a people of worship. And we will see a power that we have never seen before. Who then will consecrate himself willingly to the Lord today? David invites the people out of their comforts, and his life sings a song that awakens the people to a vision of life that they had yet to experience. He invites them into a new adventure to lay aside that comfort that they wanted to protect and become the people that God wanted them to be, a people that fully embraced his promises and to watch God change the world through worship. And what do you know? The people responded in extraordinary fashion, and they give. In fact, they gave almost double what David gave. And after David dies, Solomon becomes king. He takes all those resources and he builds that blueprint in a temple of such magnificent beauty and splendor. And when it's completed, the presence of God falls on the people like never before. And it fills the temple to where the priests can't even stand up. So why would the nations be able to stand before him either? And when it's completed, Solomon dedicates the temple and he bows on his knees with his hands lifted in the air. And he says, may all the peoples of the earth know that the Lord is God and there is no other. And what do we see after this? We see a light to the nations. We see God bring nation after nation, king after king, to come and behold his power and his beauty and his magnificence, and they pay homage to King Solomon and to his God. And Israel never had to pick up a sword. It's here in this passage that we see the climax of the Old Testament. Because for one shining moment, we see the people of God finally choose to become the people that God called them to be. 
But not long after, it all fell apart. Because the king stopped devoting himself to worship. The king turned away from God and he desired earthly power and earthly comforts. And all the people followed after him. And the story gives us a glimpse of the beauty of what the people are called to be. But it also shows us what's required in order for the people to become it. We need a king whose heart is incorruptible. A king who rejected earthly power and comfort, whose life was fully consecrated towards God and whose heart towards the world was not war, but worship. A king who will organize and gather a worshiping people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation so that God might reveal his power through them and change the world. And in the Great Commission, that king sends his people out into the world not to take war, but to to take worship, armed with the words of truth and the waters of baptism that awaken the dead. That's a powerful people. Because God dwells in their midst, the very God who says, I am your king, I am your God who is with you always, even to the end of the age. So what does all this have to do with you? We've been in this series seven months now, and at this point in the story, we know enough to know that God has put his cards on the table. And this passage challenges us to survey our own lives and to ask ourselves, do you see what God is about? Are you about the same thing? It asks us, have you really entered into God's story? Have you really entered into God's story or has your faith just become about believing in an event that happened 2,000 years ago? So sure, Jesus died on the cross for me, but he doesn't really factor into your life. doesn't really factor into your marriage, your parenting, your personal life, your friendships, your relationships. So you give a nod to the gospel story, but it hasn't really changed your story because you've never really let him in. And behold, he stands at the door and knocks. Or has your faith simply become comfort-oriented? Maybe your prayers have just become a rote wish list. Or you only approach God when life gets hard and overwhelming. Or it's become comfort-oriented in that the determining factor for how much you engage with the Christian life is based on how much it interferes with your comfort. So you'd never go to India because that seems too scary and out of your comfort zone. Or not coming to worship on Sundays because it's always been a long week. And it's just more comfortable to stay at home. Or not investing in community. You're letting yourself be known because you might be hurt. You might be rejected. So keeping everyone at arm's length feels far more comfortable and safe and secure. Or not talking to your neighbor who's struggling and whose life is falling apart and they're looking for a lifeline. 
or not praying about how to talk to a coworker, because that takes effort, and it might be awkward. In the end, comfort simply creates a faith where we don't want to be challenged or stretched. We simply want our lives to stay the same, but we still want God to be there to fix everything when we call. But Jesus is not about keeping you the same. Because Jesus brings new life. And he will call you out of an old one that feels costly. Are you willing to fully enter into his story and the life he calls you into despite how you feel? Because this king will absolutely pull you out of your comfort and to leave that security behind. And maybe that is exactly what you have been looking for for so long. Behold, he stands at the door and knocks. And lastly, is your life more characterized by warfare or worship? Maybe you're always hoarding your resources for fear of what might be around the corner. Or thinking of your church and your faith are only for a certain kind of people that value the same things you do. Are you willing to see that all of that is out of fear? not faith. And when we look around at the church at large, we see so much of the church, quite honestly, that is committed to warfare. Obsessed with culture wars, partisan politics, grasping for power while looking at the world around them as something to be defeated and despised. And every now and then I'm asked why we don't talk more about politics here. And really, it's for a number of reasons. But perhaps the simplest answer to summarize all of them is that we are not interested in earthly power. We want heavenly power. For 40 years now, we've seen the church engage in culture wars, pointing fingers and fighting with the surrounding world for power. Yet why is it that after all of these years, things have only gotten worse? And the waves of secularism have only gotten bigger. And friends, when 8,000 churches close their doors each year, and when 80% of kids raised in church have left the faith by the time they reach 29, you can rest assured that you've lost. The real issue is how long it takes to realize it. And don't get me wrong, the freedoms and values that we hold are worth promoting and protecting. But when laws, changing laws, becomes more important than changing lives, then we have fundamentally misunderstood the story that God is telling, and we have never fully entered into his mission. And we just end up fighting a war that he is not fighting with us. Because what this world needs, what this community needs, what this nation needs, what our families need, is not more Democrats, it's not more Republicans, it's more Christians whose lives are consecrated to God in worship and oriented by the cross, not comfort, where everything Jesus is shapes everything that we are, where his posture towards the world is our posture towards the world, where his purposes for the world are our purposes for the world. That is a people that are far more powerful than any voting block or any earthly agenda. 
Because God himself dwells in the midst of that kind of people. And they will be a light to the nations and neighbor. And they will see the power of God that will make all things new. Behold, he stands at the door and knocks. And the one who knocks is not old and gray with a long beard, but he's ancient. With hair like gleaming snow and eyes like flaming fire. Feet like glowing bronze and his robes are like staring at the sun in the middle of the day. And his voice is like the thunder of the deep. And one day when the world sees him, the rulers and the kings of this earth will mourn and wail at the sight of him. They will search for those misty mountains to hide under. And they will look for those dungeons dark and deep because all of the power that they have chased after in this life never amounted to a drop in the ocean of the power that is coming for them. Today he stands at your door and he knocks and he says, I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure with me. Won't you let me come in? And what song might you hear if you do? For the glory of Christ and the life of the world, let's pray.